The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is Jeff Ellis. Jeff is the CEO of DF Concerts, the people who bring you so many festivals and music events throughout Scotland. We talk about Jeff's early life and career and booking bands such as the Stone Roses while they were in their infancy, moving up to Scotland to manage King Tut's and eventually co-founding Tea in the Park. And Jeff talks about some of his greatest memories throughout his career, including smuggling Brandon Flowers of the Killers through the Tea in the Park campsite. And as always, there's plenty more. Pleathered is written, recorded and produced by me and has grown through word of mouth. So if you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it because it's a great help. Cheers. So, Jeff Ellis, CEO of DF Concerts, the man we can thank for so many good times. I have to seek an apology from you. Apart from Celtic, I think you have directly or indirectly contributed to more hangovers <laughs> for me than anybody else. What have you got to say for yourself? Oh, well, uh, no apology there. Exactly. No, it should be me thanking you. Uh, it is a real pleasure to have you in. I'm very excited to be finding out a lot of things about career and, and the music industry and so many things in Scotland, but I suppose the best way to start any conversation, any story is, is to look at the origins, where you came from, the wee bits in between that I think people have missed yep. and to pick up on that. So was it Stockport you were born? Yeah, well, I, I, I was born uh, just by Man City's Ground, actually. Um, <clears throat> um, well, really close to City's Ground in uh, Ashton. And uh, but I grew up in a place called Romley, which is you know part part of Stockport, so kind of you know the south side of Manchester, really. So um, yeah, I went to you know. Uh, a really big school there, Mar- Marple Hall School, which is one of the biggest in in the north of England, actually. So it's uh, the pre- <laughs> and looking back at it, pretty, pretty crap school as well. Right. But uh, but you know, a lot 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 of fun, and you know, a lot lot of mates from school. And then um, went to Stockport College, um, did a diploma in building. I left school when I was um, when I was sixteen, and I was going to actually go and work with my dad, who was uh, a stonemason. Mm. And uh, you know, my mum and dad split up when I was <clears> about uh, six or seven or something, and kind of um you know lost touch with my father over bit bits of time but then um he'd been back in touch and and I'd always you know uh been working during the kind of school holidays for the firm he used to work for so I said I'd you know go and do that and become a, an apprentice stonemason but that that kind of fell through so I managed to get into Stockport College did a diploma in in building there and went on to Coventry Poly um, to to do building and then uh, wasn't it for hated. you though was it hated it straight <laughs> yeah. off to to Middlesex Poly yeah. to do a media studies degree yeah it was more it was, it, I, I got in initially because I, I got good grades in English so I went in to do a humanities degree which was mm. going in to, to do English and and history but it, the history of it was quite hard doing a Spanish Civil War which I, I really enjoyed learning about that but the Russian Revolution which I thought would be great and you know I, I was into kind of communist theory and everything so I thought you know studying the Russian revolution god was that hard you know but um but by being on that course it meant I could um 
as part of the humanities modules could do film and TV as well. Mm. So, um, and I I tried to do media studies at Coventry Poly and they wouldn't let me swap course. So, um, so this was kind of ideal. So I went to City of London Poly as well, um, kind of Shoreditch way before Shoreditch became cool like it is now. Mm. But, uh, so I was doing film, um, and, uh, photography as well as, you know, uh, uh, you know, so, some English and a bit of history. So kind of focus more on the film and the photography and uh, side of things. And, you know, thought, you know, hopefully I can be, a, you know, a film director or mm. get to work in film. And one of my um, uh, first jobs was working on, um, uh, whilst I was at college, was working on a, a, a video for a little known band called Deacon Blue. Wow. <laughs> no way. Tell me about that. Yeah, I was working as a runner and um, their record label was making a video called Dignity oh, for, for the song Dignity wow I mean and, um, hold the bus ah. if, if anybody's <laughs> as big a Deacon, Bland, the Deacon Blue fan as me they'll be screaming I'll go no way Dignity yeah, that's unbelievable and, and if you watch it there'll be you see uh, Jim you know, playing keyboards and there's wow. there's a reflection of the, the water meant to be um you can see it reflecting on him. That special effect was me. Wow. I had the um, bit, bit of tinfoil, really, and against yeah. the light, and uh, you can't see me moving my arms here. Inextricably uh, linked to yeah. Scottish culture from the start before and, you even got here. Yeah, and somebody posted that, and I, I made a comment on it. Oh, wow. Lorraine McIntosh came straight back and said, all the years I've known you, Jeff, and, and worked with you, you know, <laughs> when you've been a promoter, and I never knew you worked that video. That's amazing. And it went, it went much further, because be, being a runner, obviously you do, you know, all the, all the odd jobs, and... Um, I uh, I was driving as well. I don't only just learned to drive actually, and uh, so they'd give me a van. And uh, the first job was um, Lorraine wants uh, her gloves. Uh, she's left them in the Columbia Hotel, which is you know used to be the rock and roll hotel yeah. long before the K West in London. And and you know the Columbia is legendary amongst bands. You know, I mean, uh, I think Billy Sloan still still stays at the Columbia when he goes to to London. But you know, the bar used to open all night. Great, great place. And Deacon Blue, obviously being being a Scottish band, was mm. staying in there as every other Scottish band does. So I had to drive back to the Columbia, and I'd got um, <laughs> Lorraine's you know room card. She told me where the the gloves were, and obviously they were essential for the video. I don't think they. I don't think there's a shot with her wearing them in the video, but but she you know she needed them. So, Peace um, of mind. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that, that was good fun. So that that that, that was um, yeah, I guess the first thing I did in in, in music. But then um, I was reviewing uh, gigs for the student newspaper, and another Scottish band connection. Um, uh, friends again, who you know, members went on to mm-hmm. to form Love and Money, and friends again were, were, were playing. So that was the first gig I reviewed for right, the. Okay. Uh, for the uh, you know, student uh, student magazine. So um, yeah, that and I, I, I was kind of working on the door, doing um, security at the, the the gigs and stuff, and putting up the posters for gigs, and uh, then you know helping load the PA in and that kind of stuff. So uh, the, the entertainment manager left, and it's because it's a permanent job working for the student union, and mm-hmm. he left, and um, you know recommended that I took over until the, they found somebody else to do the job. And I did did that for three months and thought quite fancy this mm-hmm. is a is a full time job so I applied for it permanently and um, and uh, went, went part time in my degree and and full time working for the students union. Did you just <coughs> starting in the I suppose would there have been the um, the Deacon Blue video? Did you just get a sense of this is kind of where I want to be around? Was there an, an element of excitement to it or? Yeah, de- definitely. Because whilst I, I in my head, I thought you know it's film. Film's obviously very difficult to get yeah. into, and uh, <clears throat> you, know, you know, much harder than music, I imagine. On, on certainly on the you know directing and producing side of things, anyway. And um, 
you know, but you know, when you're young, you you, you kind of you know have these dreams, and, mm. you know. But, but I, I guess music was a bit more tangible because you know, without realizing, I was involved in it by you know working on the you know on, on the entertainments at Middlesex. But um, I guess I'd always been a real fan of music as well. You know, as you know, big jam fan, Clash. Joy Division. Um, You're the same as me. You're a big uh, Neil Diamond fan yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, my dad. My so dad there's was, a very an element of variation there. Yeah. No. Well, my dad had a load of uh, well, not a load. He had a couple of Shirley Bassey and a couple of Neil Diamond mm. songs. It was that or my mum's brass band collection that I could listen to in the house, you know, before I started buying records. So, uh, so yeah, Neil Diamond kind of won over that, you know, <laughs> Shirley Bassey a close second. But, uh, but yeah, so you know, quite, quite, and and look, my sister was into. David Bowie and rocks mm. and music and Kraftwerk and stuff like that and Pink Floyd. So I kind of, you know, that that they all had a big influence on me as well. And, you know, I remember, you know, when we were kind of 15 going, you know, before the Hacienda opened, we would be going to kind of, you know, places like Rotters and Pips in Manchester. And they used to have like a rooms that they call a Bowie and Roxy room. And it just mm. basically played David Bowie and Roxy music, you know, songs. And we used to hang out in there. And, uh, and then, you know, we, we started going down to the Hacienda when we were about 16, coming up 17. And, um, and you know, so I, I guess I, I, I loved, you know, music and, and you know, uh, you know yeah, just, just got, yeah. got into into bands and that really. Well, I, I think everybody can kind of, if, if you were to ask people to trace where their music tastes or preferences come from, you've got probably what's out at the time. And what kind of just catches your ear? You've got what your pals are listening to, what you're exposed to, and then you've got what everybody and your family's listening to. Because I could probably list a whole load of artists and go, "Well, I got X, Y, and Z yeah. for my mum, and I got this yeah. for my auntie and my cousin." And you living in a a varied house, and I want to talk about your house growing up because I feel that there's a, a couple of assumptions I've made, and I want to know if I'm right or if I'm wrong. Uh, you you can. Uh, shed light on that but with there being such a variation of characters you're probably hearing all different sounds and I always feel as well like with music for me anyway what I listen to is people say what do you listen to and I will say well it depends how I feel if I'm feeling buzzing it's going to be a certain thing if I want to feel sorry for myself and be like oh here we go fucking three more months of lockdown right get like something depressing on like that music kind of reflects how you're feeling um to go back to oh by the way I also want to mention something about Spanish Civil War because I'm obsessed with it. I, I actually don't know what I'll do that just now I had a crash course in Spanish Civil War history um, I worked as a as the like a sort of language consultant yeah. and I was working with this university professor who was delivering these lectures in English and what he wanted to do was practice his university lectures with yeah. me and for me to then interject and say oh no you're pronouncing that wrong or um, I don't know basically just yeah. saying this is how you say that um, and uh, Barcelona is the place if you want to go and do a wee bit of Spanish Civil War yeah. does, uh, have, you ever, have you been? Like, yeah a few times to Barcelona yeah, there's a place it, called uh, Bunkers uh, it's called Bunkers El Carmel which has now been turned into a full scale tourist attraction right. and it is literally uh, a middle point in a, a neighbourhood called El Carmel and it's like kind of yeah. up a mountain and it's literal bunkers that they used to shoot down the, oh, the Spanish yeah. Air Force planes so they built up wee houses and all that and they found loads of artefacts but now it's like a like an interactive exhibit. There's another thing called, that's it for anybody else who's interested in Spanish Civil War history. There's a place called uh, Plaza Saint Philippe Neri and it's kind of, it's quite near La Rambla, it's very central. Oh, okay. yeah. And there's a plaque and it says on this day, I think it was the 29th of January, 36, the Spanish Air Force, Franco's Air Force dropped yeah. a bomb and it killed like 40 or 50 kids who were playing there yeah. and the, yeah. they've never repaired the shrapnel from yeah. like these big massive concrete blocks and there's big chunks miss, missing out of them you think if it did that to yeah. 
to big brick wall. But there's yeah. a lot of fascinating history to go and to go and uh, look at look at in, in Barcelona with regards to that. What I was going to say about you growing up. So obviously in Glasgow football is a massive thing about determining some where you stand in the political spectrum at times or you know, kinda you can you can make a lot of assumptions that will usually be correct about somebody based on their football. Not always, and that's not me saying whether it's Catholic or yeah, Protestant yeah, yeah. before then they starts getting upset and getting in touch with me. So your parents were the North East and they supported Middlesbrough and Newcastle. Yeah, so yeah. did you, your your three siblings are United fans, yet you chose City. Yeah. What 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 do you think yeah. that says about you? <laughs> because that because yeah. that is like that's really oppositional, even in yeah. England, to yeah. take the different route. Yeah, no, it is weird. And, and my, my eldest sister actually she she's a big City fan now, but she was a United fan. Now, now, she changed. My brother and my two sisters they, they, they weren't seriously into football, mm. but they you know they were United. But it, but it's weird because in Manchester. It, you know, it's generally well known that you know City are the Manchester club. You know, yeah. the, the, you know, people say there's more people support City in Manchester. I think the reality is it's about half and half. But all the rest of United fans come from outside of Manchester, mm-hmm. so that's why United have such a big fan base. Whereas in the city, it's pretty pretty mixed. But when I was growing up as a kid, um, you know, United had started to become more dominant, you know, even from the Tommy Doherty days, even before they started winning things, you mm-hmm. know, United were kind of doing, doing well, slightly uh, less worse than City were, you know, once we got into the, into the kind of mid seventies. So at school, there's a lot of plastic Liverpool fans, plastic Leeds fans in particular, because mm-hmm. Leeds were doing well and, you know, United fans. So, I, you know, me being a City fan was a bit rare at, at, at primary school, at least, anyway. Although out of the people who actually went to games, it's probably about even between City and United. But, yeah, in, a, in the household, it's weird. Cause, you know, my dad was a, a real, you know, football fan, but he he did his apprenticeship in London. So he'd um, gone to see Arsenal a lot when he mm. lived in London. And I think I was in, you know, the 1930s because he was actually going to go off to um, to Spain for the right. Civil War. You wow. know? And then, um, you know, he was, because he, was, he used to go, go on all the, you know, anti-fascist marches in, in London and everything. And then, you know, but uh, but anyway, obviously then he ended up in the Second World War anyway. But, um I'm a, you know, my mum wasn't a you know a big football fan, but Middlesbrough was 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 um, sorry, um, Newcastle was her team, and Middlesbrough was my my, my dad's team. But yeah, I, I don't know whether it's just you know a, a reaction. I, I certainly always remember liking the colour blue and hating the colour red <laughs> from a very young age. But there was, a, it was a, somebody my dad had, had worked with because um, he was a, a local councillor as well. So it's somebody involved in that who used to go to City every week. So he used to take me to the games from being like three-year-old. Mm. You know? So I used to go, go with him till I was about you know eight or nine. And then my sister decided when, when I was about 10 to because I hadn't been for a season she just decided to take me to a game Man City against Chelsea one all draw I remember it well and then you know she became a City fan and, and she bought a season ticket and uh, she she was a season ticket older longer than I was because you know when I went down to London I gave up my season yeah. ticket because I couldn't get to every game but she she would still go and go on her own but, uh, but yeah it's probably just you know be, being um yeah, people say I'm argumentative. <laughs> yeah, so maybe that's why I became. A is there a whole fan. load of people in the DF Consulate's office going, "Aye, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure there is." <laughs> they won't admit it. They'll say, "I never said that, Jeff. What are you talking about?" Uh, but I think there is really because when I when I sort of discovered that, I thought you don't go and start something like a like tea in the park or transmit, or you don't go and put on these large events if there's something there's a level of defiance in you because I think rational thinking 
you would go, nah, that, that's not possible. But, uh, I, th- I think you've got to be, yeah, I think it, it's probably true in any kind of walk of business, you've got to be quite defiant because there'll be, you'll be, you'll always find people saying you can't do something. And look, you know, it's credit to Stuart Clumpus who, you know, decided to take the, the plunge with tea in the park and, you know, um, there's him, uh, Judith, his, his, his partner and myself in, in the company at the time. And, um, you know, my job was to, to book the bands. Judith did the marketing and Stuart was uh, the kind of brains and the, you know, um, the, 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 the organiser, you know, behind it all and took, took the plunge. But, um, but yeah, you know, ev- everybody said it failed. And uh, and it, look, even with camping, I mean, I, I said to Stuart, we should have a campsite. And Stuart was like, nah, you know, that'll, that'll never take off. <laughs> so, Jeff, you've not been in Scotland long enough to realise that it, the weather, do, you know, the weather in the midges, nobody will ever camp in Scotland. You know, uh, you know, no, it's just something Scots don't do. I'm like, Tell them they can go boozing and yeah. they will. Well, I said, well, I think we should have a little bit of a campsite. I said, yeah, I'm, I, I think people in Hamilton and Motherwell will still want to camp at Tina Park. It's mm. like, oh, look, Jeff, we'll, we'll do one. And we, we had, I think, two or three portaloos. I, I went, went to see the people who ran the service station at Bothwell Services and said, look, you know, would it be okay if our campers use your toilets? And they're like, yeah, of course, you know, because we'll, we'll, we'll sell them breakfast and things like that. And uh, the doorman at the time, Steve Broadfoot, the doorman for King Tots, he ran the campsite single-handedly on his own and we had a queue of people. He'd take two pound off them and go and pitch a tent with them, come back and get the next one. <laughs> and on the Friday Genius. night, you know, and this is, you know, small beginnings, myself and Stuart are about to leave because we didn't stay in a hotel. We drove back to our, uh, well, my, my flat and his house, you know, because, you know, we couldn't afford hotels in the first year of Tina Park. And, uh, and we, we had a, you know, a thousand people camping, a thousand or so camping. And then, you know, in the last years of Tina Park, we had 75,000 camping, you know, yeah. it's just incredible. So, so, you know, I think your point about defiance and getting back to that, I think, you know, if, if you're not, then you don't really get anywhere. Because if it was easy and, and the path to where you wanted to go was easy and there's no obstacles, everybody would be doing it mm. and it'd be, really, you know, it'd be hard to make, make your mark. So I think, you know, if you, if you choose a more difficult path, you've got to be defiant to get through it. Um, whatever that, that, that path is, whether it's, you know, being an actor, whether it's being a footballer, whether it's, you know, not, nothing comes, comes mm-hmm. easy, I guess. So I think, you know, to succeed in, in anything, you, you, you've got to be fairly defined. Otherwise, you know, every, everybody would be doing it anyway and it'd be easy. Mm-hmm. I think to, to slightly contort a very well-known or overused cliche about dreamers and doers, I would say the difference between a dreamer and a doer is they both dream but only one of them goes and actually does it. Yeah. And it's like, maybe it's just, do you think it's just the going and taking action? But do you also think, is there an element of delusion? <laughs> because again, on paper, if I was, if you were to have said back in say 92 or 93 and described Tina Park 2014, you'd be like, no way, man. But do you think? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's something, if you, if you looked at everything that <clears throat> might stop something happening, you'd never do it, you know, because yeah. you'd have so many barriers in front of you. So I think there is, it's probably a, you know, whether it's self belief or, or delusion, and, and maybe the two, the two are intertwined yeah. anyway. You know, but I think yeah, you have to kind of, you know, have that determination because you know, um, otherwise you, you just never, you know, but brush through everything. And and I guess with a lot of things, you know, logic might say something's not going to work, but you've just got to got you've got to try, and you know, it, it, you know, um. You know, we 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 start events. You know, like tra- you know, transmit. Mm-hmm. You start out of out of nothing. It's just an idea, but you just have the belief. No, it's going to work. 
And people say, oh, but there's no camping. doesn't matter. doesn't matter now. It, ma- it mattered 20 years ago to, to have a campsite. Yeah. Important. Now it doesn't matter. People have changed. And, and, and even people in my own company are going, oh, yeah, are you sure? You know what? And I'm like, no, it, it has now. You know, that, that people want urban events more than they did before. People mm-hmm. used to want to escape the city. Now they like to, to go to the city as well, you know. And, it, you know, it's all about ease and, you know, um, and the city will become... The, the after show party rather than as having yeah. a campsite you know it, it, you know mm-hmm. and you know people are questioning but that's not how it's worked in the past and it's like no it's not but you know ev- everything move, moves on and if you do the same thing again and again it, you know you're going to get you know the, the, the dwindling kind of returns you've got to stagnate yeah, don't they? yeah well, definitely and, it, and I've always I've, I've never been somebody who likes to rest on laurels you know and, and, I, and I, I don't think you can because the minute you go right we've achieved something you're only going to go backwards. You've got mm-hmm. to keep pushing forward. And, and, you know, you don't change things for the sake of changing them, but you've always got to evolve, and, you know, no matter what, what what you do in life. And I think that's that, that, that's always true. And if you don't, you know, kind of reinvent things, and look, you know, look at successful artists and go, go back to David Bowie or other, you know, more recent examples like, you know, Kylie Minogue, Madonna even, you know, that they all, you know, kind of reinvent themselves mm-hmm. without kind of, you know, disowning what they've done previously or yeah. certainly not in Bowie's case anyway but you know you you, you you evolve and that's what keeps you relevant you know mm-hmm. like Radiohead I remember having a conversation with them the, the, the day Kid, Kid A came out they were playing at Glasgow Green and we did a put them on for two nights in a tent and they were really down because NME had given them a really shitty review saying Kid A was, was, was you know, a crap album and the band had lost it and mm. you know, why didn't they do the Benz again and OK Computer was all right, but it wasn't the Benz. And, you know, and I'd just gone in to, to see them and I've worked with them since since it started and I knew Ed when he was at Manchester Poly working on the Ents Committee there. And uh, I just said, you, know, you don't, you know, you're Radiohead, you don't, you don't write songs for enemies approval, you know, hey. <laughs> you know what, what's that about? And, uh, and it's weird, it felt like you're giving a pep talk to one of your favourite bands, <laughs> but, but it's just in that moment, they were, they were kind of down and doubting, well, not doubting themselves, but feeling, you know, that, that they're, they're, they weren't being understood. I'm like, look, you know, I, I love your music, but, you know, it, it takes a while to, to, to sink in because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're pushing the envelope. And if you're not pushing the envelope, you're not really, you know, you're not being Radiohead. And mm-hmm. that's that's what you do. And that's what we look look to you to do. And, and uh, you know, they, they were kind of quite buoyant and they ended up doing Creepers and Encore, which, uh, <laughs> which, you know, at that point they weren't weren't doing it. So obviously their mood <laughs> lightened up by the yeah, end of the game. <laughs> it's a really interesting point you see that about the con- cause constant evolution. It is, I think there is an element of Darwinism to every sort of facet of life and existence, whether it's in who we are as a person, how we are with people, and, yeah, maintaining that sort of fundamental characteristic or identity that's that's your essence it's never going to be gone but there has to be a sort of change I never looked at trans, the whole transmit thing that way I, I just looked at it as a punter I'm just thinking yes party yeah, time yeah. but there, there is there is more to it that's quite interesting we'll go back to um, to one of your first uh, and I've got a question for this one and you, you can tell me which it is right or if it's a mix of both <coughs> to one of the first bands you booked so is this a fortuitous coincidence or is it an example of a razor, razor sharp, sorry, refined radar for talent when you booked the Stone Roses yeah, right. for Middlesex Poly? Fucking hell. Yeah. That I'd is like, amazing. I'd like to say it's all um, all down to razor sharp instincts, but but um, but it wasn't just fortuitous. I'd, um, you know, uh, I, I was 
aware of the the, the band's names, had seen the, the the graffiti around Manchester for Stone Roses, mm-hmm. and it's quite a, you know a big thing at the time. So that I, I guess I knew their name, but <clears throat> didn't know really know anything about them. Hadn't heard the music, and because I was living in London, you know, um, you know, it, it, you know, and obviously this is pre-internet days, so um, you know, but I I I, I um I put a band called the Train Set off off this really fledgling agency in um in uh, Manchester who one of the main agents you know is um, one of is the MD at Primary Talent now one of the biggest agencies in the world and he was agent for for Daft Punk for many years as well wow. so you know but going back you know um when he he just started out with this agency in Manchester and the, the guy who set up the agency had this band called Stone Roses and I booked I booked the train set off him and he sent me a, a tape saying look you know you should um because the train set were a great great band but never really went anywhere but he said oh you know do you want to do a gig with this band you know they want to come to London do a couple of dates Stone Roses and the tape was um you know and. and I think most promoters would tell you you don't really book bands off demo tapes because mm. demo tapes is some you know when people used to make demo tapes. So like signing a player yeah. off a highlights package, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Exactly, and 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 you know for a record company or record label, you know demo tapes, you know a way to hear about it. But mm. for for a promoter, it's all about well, you know you might have great songs, but if you don't have, if nobody knows who you are, you yeah. don't have fans. We're not going to be able to put you on. So you know if you run a venue, you tend to go off you know where, where people have played live before, but um. I think it was Tell Me and it was Elephant Stone that were on the um, on this tape and I listened to it and I just thought that's great and he put a picture in in with it and the, you know Ian Brown obviously you know very, very, you know the epitome of of kind of indie cool mm. at, 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 at the time and and you know full of Manchester attitude and swagger and I just thought that, you know I, I, as much as the music really impressed me and I thought this this band are, are are great, but it you know it wasn't a great quality tape and I was playing it on a on a crappy tape recorder. So, you know, um certainly what you know um you know it, it you know it, it was what it was in in that respect. But it just felt as though this is what uh, <laughs> it sounds like a, a cliche, but it is what the world was waiting for. Mm. You know, it just felt like that this could be Kind of a zeitgeist that was going to re- yeah. really um, go somewhere, and then uh, Bob Stanley, who, who um, from Saint Etienne, was was writing for Melody Maker, and he came to review the gig that I put them on at Middlesex Poly, and um, and he, he did a raving review about them, how how they were going to be the biggest band on the planet. <coughs> Excuse me, and and from that moment on, you know, everybody. So, you know, in London, then caught the Stone mm-hmm. Roses kind of fever, and um, you know, pretty soon they were doing Alexander Palace, you know, in, in London and doing two nights there. You know, it was about eighteen months later they did Spike Island, or two years mm. later it was Spike Island. So that they, they they really went from kind of you know spraying graffiti over you know, across Manchester Town Hall, you know, and, and the, around there to to being you know a, a huge band. With a you know massive following, and you know a big following in Scotland as well, mm-hmm. you know because you know the, I think that Manchester Glasgow thing, which is football, it's music, it's street yeah. culture, it's you know uh, it, it it all just resonated. You know? Do you think was I, I seem to get the impression I might be wrong that there was just a general air of discontent and dissatisfaction, and then they come out and through their music, it just <clears throat> it's as if just that's embodied through that. It's... Yeah, well, I think because you had Joy Division, which really captured the bleakness, yeah. and the minimalism, particularly you know. And, and Kevin Cummins, a photographer who's become a 
good mate of mine. Go, we go to city matches together. But yeah, his iconic image in, in Hume of them on the you know footbridge, you know, you know, over the the, the Mancunian Way kind of thing. And, and it just you know that that's kind of sums up the the bleakness of you know Thatcher's Britain and you know mm. everything that was going on and how miserable Manchester was at that point. Stone Roses brought that, you know, on the crest of, you know, the the second summer of love, the whole kind of, you know, uh, acid house kind of thing going on in the background as well. And it just, it was a positive kind of outlook that that that, that, that they came out with, it was, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, they were pretty much the first indie, indie dance band. And, you know, you had, you know, people like Charlatans following on Happy Mondays, you know, closely behind, uh, you know, in London, you have Flowered Up and, you know, uh, you know, and that, that whole kind of scene, which Stone Rose has pretty much, you know, started with the Mondays be, being very influential in it. It just created a real, I don't know, because we're, we're still living in dire times, but it just kicked against everything but in with a real air of positivity and and dance culture exploded around that mm-hmm. but it, you know and then you know new order the, uh, you know as well with, with with the technique album and you know made that bridge between indian and, and and dance music and suddenly all these kids got you know were going to the hacienda but were wearing baggy clothes and you know dancing to to fool's gold <laughs> as well as you know to, to the latest you know kind of things from detroit and, and chicago mm. Another band I wanted to ask about. Um, I was really, I was quite taken aback by this. I, I couldn't really work out what level they were at at this point. You'll be able to fill me in. So when you were working at the Marquee Club in London, Aerosmith were one of the yeah. bands that you brought in. That's amazing. Like, yeah, was Stephen Tyler very much Stephen Tyler at that time? Yeah, they, they were. Sense. They were possibly the biggest rock band around at the time. Um, they were headlining, you know, Donington Monsters of Rock. Festival, so oh. that you know that the, the you know, and I can't claim that it's you know great booking prowess that that that, that they were doing the marquee. It, it was you know the marquee yeah, was, yeah. was legendary by reputation. So particularly American bands wanted to play there, mm-hmm. and they needed a warm up for for Donington, and obviously you know uh, they couldn't do anywhere bigger because you know that that would have affected the sales of Donington. So so I had them um, and uh, and and Poison as well who who were who were playing and who were you know very big at the time too and Wonder Stuff I think the same week it's probably the best week ever in, in the mar- in in that version <laughs> of the Marquee Club anyway you know that I wasn't wasn't involved when it's at Wardour Street which is when it's in its in its heyday but. Um, but yeah, it, 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 you know that it was a great gig. It was, again, it's it's like all those gigs that are really a hot ticket. It kind of, it, it, you know, when you're inside, you know, there's only what the capacity is 850. There's probably about 50 guests. So it's not the biggest mm-hmm. gig around. But you know, it's like wow, it's, it's, it's Aerosmith on that stage, and it, it it felt a bit unreal. To, to be honest, it felt as though it wasn't really happening yeah. because you know it's certainly the biggest band I'd ever worked with at, at, at that time. But they're all. I got. I remember getting a really nice letter from uh, Tim Collins, who's kind of their production director at the time. After the show, just you know, thanks for looking after us. Really good. Really, really, really enjoyed it. And you just go out, oh, you know, to, to to even bother to send Aye. it. And that was a proper letter, you know, a signed letter on a head of paper that they they sent me. So I've still got in the house. I, I suppose two questions immediately come to mind. The first one would be. Having dealt with them, and obviously you're a wee bit overawed as anybody would be. But when you realise, oh, I don't know a minute, they're just guys, just like me, and they're doing their job. First of all, 
do you think that maybe either consciously or subconsciously made it easier for you to just be head on and approach an acts to come to festivals later on down the line or, or to you know deal with them? Yeah, I think what you find is you know, <coughs> you know, musicians are people, you know, and and okay, you know, you've you've got to have a, a, an ego to be a front person in a band because mm. otherwise you, you you know otherwise you you you're not a, a Bono, you're not a you know a, a Steven Tyler, you're not a, an Ian Brown. But you know that doesn't mean that these people are, are when they're not on stage are are difficult people because mm-hmm. you know I mean some like you know Brandon Flowers, you know is most kind of mild mannered you know quiet person you'd you'd, you'd meet off stage mm-hmm. and then once he gets on stage he puts that jacket on literally yeah, uh, and, he's, and he's a he's a performer you know and uh, and he's so gregarious but he's quite shy in real life yeah, but, right. he's, but on stage. You know, he's. The, it's the funny that because that, that's all. You, that's all you really yeah. are exposed to who they are yeah. on stage yeah. when they're actually very different yeah. characters. And, and you know, the, the, at the end of the day, they're people, and you know, people have you know, in, in all walks of life have insecurities as well as needing a lot of confidence. Mm. I also, think uh, you know, are, are are we doing the right thing? You know, and and you know that you know, so they they obviously challenge themselves, which is why they're at. You know, bands who are at the top of the game are probably there because they do question what what, what yeah. they do as well, and you know, is it relevant? And you know, so whilst they've got to have confidence, it, it doesn't mean that they become arrogant. And um, and certainly you know, in terms of like behaviour, you know, the, the whole rock and roll excesses tends to be from smaller bands on the way up rather than bands who who, who are who are at the top because for mm. one they want to they want to hang on to the money when they're at the top rather Aye. than paying for uh, TVs going out of hotel windows. But um, but you know it, you know I guess um, you know they are normal people and and you know that that they like to you know kick back and have a have a drink with their with, with their mates as much as anybody else does really. I suppose this is pretty much the sort of bingo question where it could be in it to me. A wee bit lazy for me, but who are the standouts or are there any sort of particular standout memory? Say if you're sitting at a dinner table, would you tell you'll have like a go to tale of I had a night out with this guy or this woman tried to fire into me or <laughs> this guy threw a <coughs> TV at the Blyswood Hotel. Uh, like. I think some of the I mean some of the great you know, and I've been privileged to work with a lot of artists over the years, and the, and they're all pretty much all of them have been privileges. Um, you know, um, and yeah, I mean Ro- Roger Daltrey. You know, um, you know, get, I've got to meet him through um, uh, you know, his patronage of Teenage Fan Club, uh, Teenage Cancer Trust. So, mm. um, and uh, you know, I've, a friend of mine who kind of r- runs all the events really for, for 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 the charity at the albert hall and everything um so you know he's introduced me to to roger a couple of times and and i've been at a couple of events where roger spoke and then we've you know had a chat afterwards and you know because we've supported the charity as well through you know a lot of our, our events you know so he's invited me to things he's you know um you know he invites me to his shows and um even get gets his tickets for the, the old chelsea game yeah. <laughs> uh against city but um so you know, but see, seeing uh, and the reason I mentioned him is, is is seeing the Who at at, um, at at seeing the park was was amazing because the Who, you know, as a band as a kid, you know, um, you know, were were, were, were huge and I, you know, I, I like the Who and the obviously they were the bridge between you know rock fans as well as mods, you know, mm-hmm. so you know they, they they had a foot in both both camps. And obviously, you know, particularly through Quadrophenia, and that's probably the reason for it. But you know, I always lo- you know loved the Who. So to to get to work with a band that 
really predate your involvement in in music was 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 amazing and uh and just hearing you know Dolce on on stage saying to the Tina Park audience at the end of the end end of their show you know you were better than Woodstock and you know, what an crowd, accolade that and, is. And you remember that, that that crowd and it's not full of who fans it's full of people who go to Tina Park all yeah, the time uh-huh. and obviously you know they they know all about the Who, so they 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 they, they wanted to be there to watch it, but they've possibly never seen most of them have never seen the Who before. So that's a Who playing to a mm-hmm. completely different crowd. Strokes and Arctic Monkeys run before them, so um, you know it's it's your atypical Tina Park crowd, and they went down absolute storm. But they played brilliantly as well, and and Townsend, you know, is notoriously moody. He usually hates his own performance. He's got you know. You know, with he's spoken before about you know tinnitus and you know or the difficulties mm-hmm. on stage and not hearing yourself properly. You know, maybe thinking that the mix on stage isn't as as clear as it is because mm-hmm. you're not hearing it as well. So, and I can't imagine what that's like. But you know, for a musician, but it must be really hard. So it, it does. You know, it's going to make you on edge. He loved it, you know. He loved the gig, and he, you know him and Dolce going off arm in arm <laughs> at, the, at the end of the the show, and uh, and smiling, and you know, do, do, you know Dolce would say, "Well, you know, I, I do that on every gig," but you know Townsend certainly doesn't. Yeah. So the two of them being happy at, at the gig that I'd booked him for and, and and was running was was you know a brilliant moment. Again, having Foo Fighters close, you know, um, and you know the, the tradition was we put a piper on the stage. Um, after the headline artists, oh, right. and and then the fireworks go off, so the piper comes on doing Flower of Scotland, and you usually have a difficult conversation with the artists because sometimes they want to to finish on their show with nothing going on after mm-hmm. it, which you can understand. But we say, look, it's Scotland, it's the last night of the festival. We didn't do it on every night, just on the on the Sunday night. We want the piper coming out. Dave Grohl stands on the stage listening to the piper. The rest of the band are, you know, getting into the cars ready to do a run up, you know, back back to to the plane and everything. And Dave Grohl stood there, you know, watching the piper wow. and clapping the piper doing Flower of Scotland and watching the fireworks. And that that was a you know a great moment that you've got, you know, a rock and roll legend like that yeah. wanting to be in the moment. He's he's done his set, but instead of just going, right, well, that, that's me off now, you know, for well and you know, rest. He's like, I, I want a bit of this. I want to see the crowd reacting to the fireworks and the pipe. Right. It's like, wow. Enjoyed every minute of it. You know, great moment. I, I was laughing at you telling a story about Shania Twain asking for recommendation <laughs> for a, a vegetarian restaurant. Yeah. And what made me laugh most about that is you'd be walking down West Regent Street and you'd turn to your pal and go, that wee lassie was a double of Shania Twain. <laughs> because why would Shania Twain be walking down West Regent Street yeah. on a Wednesday night in November? Like, yeah. it just wouldn't have you happening. Uh, it, it is. And uh, yeah, what, what was you know funny about that as well, because, you know, she had a big security detail on, on show days. You mm. know, we did two nights with the Hydro, two sold out shows and everything. And, um, yeah, and you know it, it's very much so. Yeah, we just want to go out and you know go go, go for a meal the, the night before, <laughs> without thinking anything about security and just oh, right. and we'll just walk. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll just yeah, you know, we want somewhere we want to go for a walk, but you know somewhere that's in walking distance. And you go, wow, you know that's just uh, yeah, and and yeah, as you say, probably people thinking, oh, that's that's Shania, you know, obviously not in a stage outfit or anything, but uh, but uh, you know, and a lot, you know, a lot of people are. You know, are very unassuming, and you know, I guess the other example I give is is New Order, because that's a great story. Obviously, I was, you know, Joy Division, my favourite band of all time. New Order have uh, been my gym soundtrack for the yeah, past few weeks. Actually, uh, I've been listening to. So you know, so 
you know, for me to you know to to latterly get get to work with them, yeah. and put them on at Barrowland in the academy and Tina Park was a great honour, and Brandon Flowers joining them on stage at at uh, Tina Park was great actually. And I was stood next to Brandon watching them, and um, and somebody gives him a lyric sheet, and he's just looking at that, you know, um, and reading it. And I was like, that's you know a bit strange, and I was next to him. Then somebody runs over with a mic. Gives it to Brandon, and Brandon goes on. You know, I think it's Crystal that they they, they did together. Right. So then, oh, of course, that's why he's got the lyrics. Yeah, he's he's yeah, just yeah. having a quick recap of the lyrics before he goes goes on on stage in New Order. And then at the end of that that show, um, you know, there wasn't room for Brandon in in, in the van's vehicle, and, and we had to go out through an exit to get back to the dressing rooms. There's a little gap between at that point where the the campers go back up, and you had to do it really quickly before all the campers started uh, going up there because then you couldn't have stopped the, the the crowd. And Brandon's on his own, but he's got his you know white stage jacket on, so he's you know he's standing out. I'm like, well, I've got my car. I'll take you, Brandon. You know, and and New Order's security is like, oh, probably Jeff, thanks, <laughs> you know, because we hadn't thought there'd be an extra person going back, and you know, so I'm I'm. Um, yeah, oh, sorry, I didn't have my car. I just said I'd walk, walk back with him. So then I'm taking Brandon through all the campers on the way back up to the campsite. <laughs> so I put my coat over the top of him so that people, you know, it's not as obvious, but obviously the same thing. As we're walking past people are going, that's Brandon Flowers. Yeah. And obviously because <laughs> he just literally come off the, the, the Radio 1 NME stage, you know, and uh, so we managed to get 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 Brandon, uh, you know, um, back through before, before he got uh, dragged off back to some party on the campsite. But the the, the real New Order story was um, Adam on at the Usher Hall in, uh, in Edinburgh and uh, it was a really important Man City game just before we won the league for the first time with... 2012 yeah, against yeah. the QPR. Yeah, you know. yeah. And uh, so we were playing Newcastle in the penultimate game of the season, which we kind of had to win. So I took my son at the time, who's who got into New Order. So we got the train to to uh, Newcastle, went went to the game, and that was brilliant. We won two 0 Yaya Tori really, you know, bossed it. And uh, we get the train to to Edinburgh, get, you know. And I thought, right, he's not going to last the whole show. I'd arrange it, you know, for somebody to drive us back. And uh, I thought, you know, my son's going to be too tired. He had an exam the next day as well, so <laughs> I was making him kind of study on the uh, on, on the train. You know, we watched a bit of New Order, but then he was saying, well, is this not a Joy Division song? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. And I thought, God, he knows more uh, about yeah. New Order than I thought he did, and he, he really picked it up. And I thought, actually, you can sleep in the car and I just let him watch the rest of the gig. And, you know, um, and quite often, you know, on a sold-out show, I'll take it, you know, some... We get Glenn Goyne to make us some some uh, bottles of whiskey with the, you know, DF Concerts logo on. Mm-hmm. It's a nice kind of present to give to people. So I took that into New Order and my son was with me. And they're, and they're all Man United fans anyway. And, <laughs> and uh, so uh, they said, oh, you know, he, he, the football, you know. And so I was, is that your, your boy? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I said, come, you know, come over, you know. And um, and they, yeah, they start asking him about, you know, the game and everything. And, and you know, not realising that he actually really liked their music. And then, you know, so they, he's starting to have a chat, at, you know, whatever age he was, eight or nine, I think, and, and chatting to, to New Order about music, having just oh, seen amazing. City. So, and that, that was just great. Because it's the first time I'd really spoken to them, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, as a band, you know, I'd worked with them before, but not really had 
But mm-hmm. any kind of conversation, they were just lovely. And they, they had a couple of friends at the show that they brought back. So they opened up the whiskey and everybody had a, you know, a nice. glass of whiskey, except my son, obviously. <laughs> so your son is going to just be thinking that's the benchmark of normality to be... Yeah, well, well things like my daughter's a you know, big Billie Eilish fan and big right. Beyonce fan. And it's like, well, sorry, I don't think I'll be going back and <laughs> chatting to Billie Eilish about Man City. You know? yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't quite think she's uh, as into, into football as maybe New Order are, but... Um, Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. You know? I, I, I will. We will kind of circle back to Tina Park because there's a lot of questions that I've got. I won't even talk about the sort of intrinsic value that it has to like Scottish economy and society, how much happiness it brought people. There's a lot of nostalgia. But while we are generating a lot of nostalgia for people, I've got a question I'm hoping you can answer. Um, and this is probably the most articulate way I could think to ask this. See that time that Will Smith just bounced out when Calvin Harris was on? What the fuck was that all about? Like, were they going to explain that? Because there was a, <laughs> there was a lot of people who were like, uh, waking up, steaming in the campsite, and they went, oh, my head's absolutely banging. Uh, I tell you what, I, I dreamed that Will Smith was here. And somebody's like, aye, it, yeah. it, it was. Well, the, the amount of people that, you know, that event said, that guy looked the spit of Will Smith, you know. <laughs> and, um, and it was something that I think there was about three people knew that it, <clears throat> that it was going to happen because mm. it's a, a big secret. But you know, the, the two of them are, are, are mates, and <clears throat> and you know, uh, Calvin's manager had, had said, "Look, um, you know, uh, got somebody coming over. It's a you know a surprise. You know, obviously you'll you, you know you, you'll you'll find out. You know, but it's um, you know somebody joining him. Just you know, um, you know, no no kind of set agenda or anything. But he'll you know, he'll come on stage with him <laughs> at, at some point." So, you know, you just assume it's going to be, you know, a guest vocalist or something yeah. like that, you know. And, uh, and it's great because, you know, when it happened, it, it, and the TV coverage is great. So you, you see people just looking at what's happening on stage <laughs> and then you see people's double take, yeah. and, you know, and, and it's great, you know, but even just, you know, just watching the crowd from the stage, you could see it, but the TV coverage picked it out as well. And you just see people pointing and pointing up at the screen and everybody nudging each other. Oh, like, what is going on here? So yeah, it's, it, it's probably the, one of the, those best kept secrets. Um, the one previous to that was Pete Townsend playing with um, Rachel Follow is, is, um, is, his girlfriend was opening, mm-hmm. um, Tina Park that year so uh, and it's a year before we got the Who to play so I thought right, you know we need to make Pete Townsend really want to to come back to Tina Park and uh, he was he you know him him and her him and Rachel were coming in a a silver airstream so normally like the first band on stage you know you know an artist that nobody's heard of they wouldn't necessarily be getting the star treatment Mm -hmm. like part the you know right behind the main stage that's part that that airstream let's have have Pete feeling that and he you know and I think he made a comment of god that's how they look after you know the opening acts on the bill yeah (laughs) yeah. how are they going to look after us as headliners you know if we come back and I was already in conversations with their agent about you know doing um 
them headline in the following year. So I just so actually when I had the tip off from Rachel's agent that, that Pete was going to play guitar mm-hmm. with her because uh, that was the reason her, her, her guitarist couldn't uh, couldn't make the date. So Pete just said he'd, he'd fill in, you know, but obviously on the basis mm-hmm. that it wasn't announced, you know. So so it was great. And the people who got, got to the stage really early got a real treat. So like, that, that old guy looks like Pete Townsend. Oh, I know. Doing a bit of a windmill action. Oh, it's Pete Townsend. Every year there seems to be an occasion where somebody would have probably just said, Here, what was in that drink, by the way? Because I think I'm seeing things. <laughs> Obviously, with Tea in the Park, something that is really evocative for people and does really bring a, a lot of great memories back. And I wonder sometimes if people do think, Where did, where did that actually originate? So let's kind of circle all the way back to the start. You're down in London, it's 94. You're looking through, I think, Stage Magazine. Do you see the the job advert for King Tuts. I mean, that's where we can kind of trace your your contribution yeah. back to. Yeah, well, it was 1992, February 92, that I moved up here. So I've nearly done 30 years. So obviously I was very, very young, you know, young teenager when I came up here. But, mm. um, but uh, yeah, it was, so it would have been ni- ni- 91. I, I was kind of work, living in London, working in London and, um, and do, doing some touring with with a couple of um english based promoters just you know running shows for them up and down the the country and doing a few kind of um rap shows that's um you know brixton academy and the old town and country club you know i was, I was kind of repping those for for people you know working with you know uh you know tim westwood and gangstar and people like that and, and promote my own club nights down there but uh, you know it was getting towards the end of the year Club nights needed relaunching. Quite cyclical, aren't they? Yeah, ex- exactly. And we'd had a good run. We, we were kind of uh, London's biggest kind of house night on a on a Friday, and that kind of took it out of you because you know we we were we actually nicked uh, one of the resident DJs from Hacienda, Dave Booth, who sadly died uh, last year. But he was probably the best indie dance mixer, you know, the, 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 the you know in indie house kind of mixer really you know he, he was amazing and a lot of the bands Stone Roses used to use him as a DJ in their shows at Ali Pali and everything mm-hmm. so he was our, our our resident and we had the, the busiest you know Friday night as I say but it was you know it's hard to sustain it and particularly in, in January you just think well actually we're, we're going to be on to plums here you know yeah. we're, we're going to have low audiences anyway and you know uh, and I've, I've probably grown tired of going out and flyering at every bloody uh, record shop and um you know clothes shop and you know every gig and late night club during the week I was out giving out flyers out um and yeah well I, I, you know I was pretty skint and uh saw this job advertised for for King Tut so and I didn't know a great deal about the venue but I knew mm. it had a you know good reputation and you know so I asked around a few agents a couple of tour managers and that you know so what's it all about and I said oh it's a good um yeah it's a good venue um, you know, so owned by a promoter, the company was called Dance Factory at the time. So they, you know, they gave me the rundown and said, yeah, it's a promoter that's kind of picking up on a lot of the, the you know, the newer stuff. And, mm. you know, they're, they're, and they're doing obviously your know, bands like Deacon Blue and Texas and, and stuff. So, um, and actually, Stuart uh, Clumpus at the time managed Love and Money as well. Which, oh, hey, okay. You know, it's, it brings it back, back full circle yeah. for me doing a, a review of Friends again. But, um, yeah, so I just uh, applied for the job and uh, went up, came up to Glasgow, had an interview in a tiny production office in in, in King Tut's and just said, look, you know, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm into running a venue up here. Um, and uh, she would say, well, you know, I want somebody who's going to come in and, and promote shows generally mm-hmm. as well as just King Tut's. So I said, well, look, you know, I need to, you know, 
get to know Scotland a bit more before I'd be confident booking shows into Barrowland and the SCCC and everything. And so it's like, yeah, yeah, we'll give it give it a year or so of mm-hmm. you know do, you know doing King Tuts and then you can you know step up and do other things. And you know, I started doing people like you know Jamaraquai and Galliano and um, Sarah MCs and you know using the tunnel as a mm-hmm. as a leap between King Tuts and Barrowland and doing shows at Barrowland, you know Ice Cube and Ice Tea and well. people like that and. Um, and so taking the company probably more into doing dance stuff as well as yeah. you know the, the the rock and pop that it that it had established itself with so, you know doing bands like Chemical Brothers and you know doing Daft Punk as a co-pro with Slam and uh, you know um, you know and bringing in Underworld and Massive Attack those kind of bands that that, that you know uh, Dance Factory wouldn't have been doing otherwise so kind of um, yeah and, and you know uh, and you know became. A, a, you know, a promoter in in, in Scotland, really, and mm. um, and then you know, Stuart said in 1993, late '93, yeah, let's do this festival. And Dennis Desmond, who's effectively that you know my, my you know or the you know the main shareholder in, in in the company who bought Stuart out, so he's he's been my boss ever since, really, I guess. But um, but you know, De- Dennis did uh, team apart with us from 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 the word go as mm-hmm. well so because he was doing a festival in ireland called failure so you know and there's a guy called paul morrison who um was head of music at klp who had the tenants account so that all yeah. came together and it's like yeah let's do this let's do this music festival you know? when i mean that was when you came up for the interview that wasn't your first time in scotland or glasgow one of your first times was uh you actually lived you've lived one of my dreams now i get the piss taken out of me for this right but you can I take the piss out of somebody who doesn't care and who's proud of it? So you went to see Wet 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 at Glasgow Green. I did, yeah, now, I did, yeah. Was that a, did that give you, or am I reaching here, but did that give you a feeling of the Glasgow, because the Glasgow crowd is renowned for being something special. The whole, for all my pals all over Scotland, the Scottish crowd is number one, but it's, I think it's we're an unequivocal agreement that the, the Glasgow crowd is the most special. It, it is, definitely. And again, Pete, like Brandon Flowers was great assessment. To, to that because I remember I can't remember if it was Killers or Kings of Leon who played King Tuts first but um, I think it's Kings of, no, I think it was Killers actually and that they, is they, just insane isn't yeah, it? and then they said to Kings of Leon you've got to do King of Tuts yeah. on the tour it, it's brilliant and you've got to you know, do Glasgow and then obviously both went on to headline you know see in the park mm. and everything but but you know that that particularly American acts swear by Glasgow audiences and the Scottish audiences generally because you know Tina Park became a Scottish audience, yeah. not just a Glasgow audience. But you know it, it, it's I think it's because it, it's quite unpretentious and you know somebody said oh it's a bit patronising to say it's the most passionate crowd, but I don't think it is because it you know I think you know Scots are passionate about everything whether it's you know football whether it's music you know whether it's rugby whatever mm. you know I think but it's that on. Un- on pretension, so pe- people aren't kind of looking around to see whether it's cool to clap. You know, you go yeah, to a gig uh, in London, and and people might clap, but they don't get into it in the same way. And, and uh, the further north you go, you know, Manchester audiences are much more. I don't want to say riotous because it's, it's not a riot, but they're, they're much more demonstrative than than mm-hmm. a London audience, and certainly a Glasgow audience is much more so than a than a, a Manchester audience. I've I've got a very comical example of just that exact thing. So I went to see Mamma Mia in Glasgow, right? I mean, again, I love ABBA, who doesn't? And uh, everybody's gone mental, and it was amazing. It was a pure party. So then I was in London, like this must have been two years ago, and my mate was like here. <laughs> it's like a Tuesday night and he's like do you want to go and see Mamma Mia I was like aye definitely yeah. 
I was the only person singing it. <laughs> and, and there's a thing that I think most people from Manchester up, when you're in London, or the further away you are from your home city, the more of a caricature of the stereotype of a Glaswegian or something you become. Yeah. So I'm like, where's Rangwheel is? Why isn't everybody up, like, why isn't yeah. everybody up singing? Yeah. And uh, I think there is this unapologetic yeah. uh, enjoyment and, and also sometimes there, th- this very phrase can have sort of negative connotations, but I don't think it should be that way. We also just love getting mad at it and having a party. <laughs> and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. No, I, and, and look, it, it is, it, it, it's definitely that lack of pretension. And I, I remember we put on Dolly Parton and uh, and just looking at the audience, everybody's singing every word of every song. Aye. It could have been anybody on stage. It, we could have just had a Dolly Parton. You could have put hologram, me on stage with yeah, a guitar because nobody nobody could hear us singing. Everybody was singing over the top of it, <laughs> and, and only in Glasgow. But yeah, that that wet 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 gig, I guess. You know, and the first time in Glasgow, I, I was up for a student union conference, so we're, we're in that for a couple of days and didn't really see much of Glasgow at all. But then I ended up staying an extra day. There's a, a guy who was, did my job at Brunel University and he, he knew a couple of people in Glasgow. So they, they said they'd put us up for another night and took us and said, oh, there's this gig happening. So we, we went down to that and it was, um, uh, yeah, and it's just, you know, First time in Glasgow and being in a huge crowd and just feeling actually this feels very welcoming, you know. And uh, similarity yeah, to Mancunians yeah, as well. And it's just you know, I, yeah, and you know, it just felt. And we walked to the gig, walked back, we went somewhere. Um, this is still not found a place we went to afterwards actually, but uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just um, yeah, you know, great atmosphere, really friendly kind of vibe, but just kind of. I guess, you know, your first introduction being Glasgow Green and, and where, where, where. Right. You know, couldn't, couldn't really be more Glasgow, could it? I know. Oh, Clyde Bank even. I, <laughs> I love Wait, 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 man. I, need, I want to interview Marty Pello so badly just to sit and tell him how good his tunes are. <laughs> um, tea in the Park. So for any for any younger listeners who don't know, I was also a baby when this, when this uh, like a, a literal nappy-wearing baby when this started. But this is funny to now look back. So... Took place at Strathclyde Park, um, and day one was Saturday, the thirtieth of July, nineteen ninety four. So headline act for me, the most notable Rage Against the Machine. But in the King Tut's tent, you've got Blur, Manic Street Preachers, and Pulp. That is that is a headline state. Although I don't know if I'm having those boys for Blur, they're all right. But overall, I've got a huge fan base, so that's a huge headline stage on its own. Then the next day. Sunday the 31st of July, you've got Primal Scream and Delamitri, two amazing acts. But then the King Tustin, you've got Oasis. Now that's... Did you, could you have had any idea, first of all, what the festival would go on to be, but also what these acts would go on to achieve? Like, even now, their tunes come on in your, the place yeah. that it's erupting. I, th- I think to have... I think there was in the King Tut Centre there was five future headliners that 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 year. Unbelievable. That played um, and you know, Dee Reem were in there as well. That's it. They were. But um, I keep telling people, sorry to interrupt you, but I keep saying to people that um, Tony Blair wrote "Things Can Only Get Better," <laughs> and people keep believing me. For anybody that doesn't know, this sort of soundtrack to New Labour's resurgence was Dee Reem's "Things Can Only Get Better," and also if anybody doesn't know, Professor Brian yeah, Cox, exactly, that guy, yeah, yeah. the astrophysicist or scientist or whatever, is uh, was in that band. Yeah. That's that's even more mental yeah. than Doogie Vipon being in uh, Deacon Blue. <laughs> yeah. But it is, and it's all obviously, you know, Brian Cox's career is all down to Tea in the Park. You know, yeah. he's got you to thank. <laughs> yeah, his astronomical, astrophysical eyes opened at, at Tea in the Park. But um, no, I think yeah, look, you know, you, you book 
when you're booking some like a King Tut scent at that time or, or you know, any of the smaller tents, you know, like, I mean, at it, it, um, Transmit, the King Tut stage, uh, you know, Jerry Cinnamon played the first year, Lewis Capaldi did the second mm-hmm. year, you know, uh, Fontaine's DC, you know, you, you kind of, you're booking people who you think are going to be the, the future stars. Yeah. And obviously not everybody does become one, but that year I think we had a particularly good... Uh, you know, success rate with the with the bookings. Yeah. Now, Oasis, you could feel we're gonna in the same way that Stone Roses exploded. You could feel that was gonna happen with Oasis. So, you know, it looks like wow, you know, what an amazing mm-hmm. booking. But you know, you didn't have to be a you know a, a fantastic promoter to go. I, I want that band, you know, to, yeah. to to play because they are gonna be huge. You know, it's because of what we we, we do. You've got the you've, your finger on the pulse of what the next kind of thing is and and you know quite often that comes to fruition but you know blur obviously you know became very big manix did and and they've all had long careers you know either as manix as, played you know, the hydro very recently didn't yeah they? yeah you know and um yeah so the, you know that and and pulp you know uh, uh, i've been around actually for years before seeing the part they're probably the the the, the longest standing of those of those bands but oasis were the the, the the brand new act but you just felt you know i'd worked with them at um the tramway for um you know uh, Radio One's Sound City, and, mm-hmm. and you just felt then actually that you know this band are really yeah. you know they're, they're going to explode. So, and I just remember on the bill, I think there were, there's one Dove and Smash that were e- either side of them, and and remember you know one agent going you know who are this band Oasis, you know they, they shouldn't be above my band. Like, <laughs> yeah, don't think saying that come July, and obviously at that point in July. They were huge and people couldn't get in the tent because, you know, and the next time that happened, I guess, was Coldplay, you know, and, and when Yellow broke and they were yeah. on a similar time in the King Tut's tent, albeit the King Tut's tent was a bit bigger by by that point. And again, every, you know, outside a tent, singing along as so I could hear the the, the the tunes outside. And, and you know, you, you get a real good buzz when that happens because you go, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you, you just know that, you know, that band, you could move out onto a bigger stage, but sometimes it's all about them underplaying yeah. and the people who are there going, I was there, I was in that tent at the yeah. time. And and to be in there, you you probably had to be in at least one band before to, to get into mm-hmm. the tent, you know. So you, you, they were playing, you know, Oasis were playing to the people who were most into them rather than the people who just turned up five yeah. minutes before they went on stage. So you got a really energetic crowd who kind of knew who the band were and weren't just there for the hype you know? it's, it's what's so great about King Tut's and the Barrowlands um, or the Barrowland I get pulled up for pluralising that all the time um, like Jerry Cinnamon a great example absolutely no disrespect intended whatsoever but I think it's fair comment to say that the Barrowland gigs as a fan so I was at the, the first one that had been 2017 um, and the Barrowland gigs were really something special and at the hydro, it was still great. But I just remember thinking, when it was a wee bit smaller, yeah. it was it, demand goes up. You're going to want yeah. to play the, the, the bigger things. So I, it's... I, I think that's true for for all artists. And I think um, obviously when you see them in somewhere like the hydro, you're seeing the bigger show. Yeah. So you know, Beyonce in the hydro is going to be a much better show than Beyonce in a, in a small venue because you're getting all the dances, you're getting all the visual yeah. effects. Mm-hmm. But to see somebody in a small venue is is quite unique, and people you know talk about Prince at the Garage being a you know an amazing gig, mm-hmm. you know because it's a stripped down kind of version. The Killers when they headlined Transmit, they said we want to do 
an after show gig, not for money. You know, that you know, they said, look, we'll we'll take what 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 whatever you sell in terms of ticket money, but you know, we just want to do it for yeah. you know for for the for the fans and and to basically have an after show gig. And we love King Tut, so we want to you know we're uh, in town. Yeah. We'll do King Tut. That's amazing. King, that is unbelievable. And that was brilliant. It's brilliant for King Tut. And I've never seen Brandon Flowers or anybody be, be so happy on stage you couldn't stop grinning you know and uh, it was just <laughs> yeah. yeah but again it's that thing of you know it, when you're a, a band of that kind of scale going back and playing a small venue it, it, it's pretty special yeah. because and particularly when you've just come off you know stage in Glasgow Green or in Prince's case you come off stage at the old SCCC and you go in to play the garage or King Tut's you know that it's really special for the for the audience, but mm-hmm. but for the artists as well, it, it is. But and your, your point about you know seeing Jerry and Barrowland, I'd, I'd say well seeing anybody, the Rage Against the Machine and Barrowland was amazing. Ministry, you know, was amazing. All these bands go on to do either headline outdoor stadiums or festivals. Mm-hmm. But you always kind of look back and go, oh, I remember seeing them at Barrowland. Yeah. It was so amazing because. It, they are in touching distance when they're on that stage, so it, it is something that's you're not getting the bells and whistles of the of the show. You're just getting the real pure rock and roll mm-hmm. performance, and and that's what it's all about. I I take that every day. Uh, to to flip over to the other side, obviously we're talking about the the sort of emotional aspect of it, but let's talk about even the sort of fiscal side of it. Tea in the park was valued at being worth twelve million pounds a year to the Scottish economy, which is which is huge, especially to the local economy. But also another interesting thing, forty percent of Tea in the Park tickets were sold in England, which is showing the pool to people from other countries. I'm quite keen to find out just from because I'm a nosy bastard really. But was there any government involvement or like assistance given how much of a cash injection it was? Like did they help facilitate things or were they obstructive or uh they, they were never ob- obstructive but um but uh <clears throat> you know we never got big handouts either. Um when we moved um when we had well we had to move to you know to in the park from Bellardo, you know, it wasn't our choice what, but we were forced what, to move. Just to slightly interject, if I could, if you could explain to people why that happened, because yeah, well, there's a lot of sort of um, misconceptions. Yeah, the, well, the, the the truth of the matter is, is a pipeline that that runs through uh, Kinross. It's mm-hmm. main BP forties uh, pipeline, so it's most of the UK's oil coming. Wow. <laughs> it was coming through and and gas coming through, um, uh, you know, Bellardo. But it was safe. It's what you know, one of the safest pipelines in the world, mm-hmm. and. Um, and you know the schools and Aberdeen Airport runway are on top of it as well. So, you know there's hotels. You know so it's not unique that that Tina Park was on top of yeah. it. But because of the number of people at, at, at Tina Park, the health and safety executive deemed it not unsafe. They deemed the the consequence of the pipeline failure being unacceptable, which of course it would be because mm-hmm. you know tens of thousands of people being blown up is is unthinkable. But surely a hundred people Aye. being blown up would be unthinkable, uh, yeah, as well. no. or twenty. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, wh- why is there any development on, on top of it? Why, why can you stay in a hotel on top of it, or your kids go to school on top of it? That that, you know, and obviously they'll say, well, because it's safe. But yeah, and the way they look at modelling is, it's not about risk; it's about consequence. Mm. But. If there's no risk and there's no consequence, yeah. so yeah, and you know the council were, were supportive, the government were supportive, but the HSE, 
you know, being run by Westminster, threatened to to take Scottish government to court if they allowed us to continue at, at, at Bellardo. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, Scottish government said to us, "We're not," and this is pre-referendum. They're not, you know, they they can't lose in court. And the Lord Advocate had said, "You know, you might not win because at the end of the day, there is no higher authority for health and safety than the HSE in the UK. So mm-hmm. no judge yeah. is ever going to say they were wrong because that they, they, they hold a trump card." But were, were, were the council wrong to license it for eighteen years? Uh, you know, at, at Blardo, no, they weren't. You know, um, you know, it, it, were BP wrong to let us do an event there? No, because if it was unsafe, Aberdeen Airport, you know, wouldn't would, yeah. would be operating. So, you know, um, so that that was the reason we had to move, and it, it was really frustrating. And, and Scottish government helped to to a degree. We got some some funding, um, but. In, in real terms, in terms of the costs of moving, it, it, and I don't want to demean the contribution because we're grateful for it, but it was a drop in the ocean and we gave a third of it back because it, it was support over three years. Mm-hmm. And we, we only had two years at the new site. But if I tell you, we lost, or we, we ploughed hundreds of thousands of pounds um, in, in, in high numbers of hundreds of thousands into Bellardo in terms of creating infrastructure, putting in a what you know a whole water main for you know because you've got to have water and you've got seventy five thousand people yeah. staying on site. So we created the facilities for a mini well not a mini city, the fifth biggest city in Scotland <laughs> at, at, at Bellardo for one weekend, nice. and then when we had to move all that and start again, and you start again not growing organically because when we went to Bellardo, we we moved what was a 35,000 capacity event and then grew it to, to you know, 90,000 while we were there. We were then trying to move that size of event into Strathallan, which, you know, was, a, a, a you know, effectively, you know, a, a starting from scratch again. So we had to put a load of infrastructure into there, you know, and, 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 and you know, and paying for stuff in the ground, fibre mm-hmm. optics and, and water mains and moving land and everything. And, you know, that, and that you know, co- costs so much to do. And you know what? What what was just frustrating was the folly because we shouldn't have had to move, but it got to the point where you know the government said we we can't support you any we can't you know allow the mm-hmm. council to allow you to continue. We we've got to um you know and it's all because of the the pipeline, but it's not you know you, you can't say it's BP's fault because it it, it wasn't because they were that you know that they would say that the pipeline was at its safest when seeing the part was on because yeah. it was permanently protected 24 hours a day on the build and the break and mm-hmm. during the event. And and we made sure we kept, you know, we didn't have any structures on top of it. We made sure that, you know, nobody was digging into the ground. So all of those protections were there while the event was there. BP had somebody on site 24 hours a day as well. You know, so, it you know, it was safe. But, you know, at the end of the day, that you know, the... the, the and, and it was just changes in personnel, I guess, because HSE had allowed or not objected to the planning consent for 18 years. Mm-hmm. It's just when it came up again, somebody decided, you know, and did, it was basically did, Boffins and Liverpool deciding that it, 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 it um, you know, it doesn't compute for them. I wonder if, if the person who made the final decision get, like, knocked back for being too drunk or something at the door of the party. He's like, I'm going to get them one day. I want to rule it out. But, I remember at one point, actually, when somebody asked me a couple of years about afterwards and, and they got, a director of the HSE to say, oh no, we, we didn't make the move. And I, I went on record at the time saying, yes, they, they absolutely did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, let, let's go to 
to you know take me to court for, yeah. for libel if I'm saying you did you did say that and you know they would they would then say well no it's Scottish government who uh, and the local council who stopped it happening but they it was them who told you know basically Scottish government that they had to tell the person in Ross Council that we couldn't go ahead so you had basically the planning permission was overturned and that yeah so I feel for person in Ross Council yeah. because they they wanted the event. That they they wanted to license it. They felt it was safe, you know. And um, yeah, but look, you know, that's you know a whole a whole part of my life, you know, that that was just dreadful from a personal and business point, yeah. point of view. Because you know, it, it was it became the end of seeing the part really because you know we, we didn't survive the move. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it might have you know declined if we'd said it, Bilardo. Who, who knows? But you know, it, it it was too hard to move something of that scale, mm. and, and you know. Again, you know, when I tell you we're the fifth largest town in in in, in Scotland, so imagine moving Paisley somewhere else. You know. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of people yeah. who wouldn't mind making that happen, to be honest. <laughs> but no, it's a shame. It's a shame, and what might have been. People have certainly got a lot of great memories about yeah. you. See it in yeah. social and, media. And, and look, I think that's the main thing. It's like people, you know, bump, bump into me and say, look, you know. Seeing the park was one of the, the happiest points of my life. I met yeah. my husband there, met my wife there, you know, um, you know, future husband or wife. <laughs> but yeah. um, you know, and and people have so many great memories. And the good times far exceeded the bad, you know, yeah. and everybody's got really fond memories of it. And it's things it's, things know. move on, things kinda last forever, unfortunately. Yeah. As you say, you don't you can't really predict what would have happened. You don't know yeah. what the, the younger generation coming through, what other preferences and now yeah. obviously they're looking for maybe more urban experiences which will will come on to. So transmit. I mean you like dropping vowels for stuff, don't you? <laughs> Whether it's summer sessions, or... yeah, I, I always used to get a clip around the ear from my mum for dropping H's, but um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's, it, it, I don't know, it just felt the right thing to do. I mean, obviously now we're in a pandemic, having uh, something called transmit is maybe not the, <laughs> the cleverest of things, but I think everybody sees over that. But there's, there's actually a festival in Mexico that's sponsored by Corona, so it's called the Corona something. Oh, Jesus. Uh, so I think they're trying to put the vaccines to, uh, to headline that. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, so there's always somebody in a worse position anyway. But no, it just, it just felt like um, the right thing to do. So at the time, you know, obviously technology, you know, and you know, mobile kind of companies and everything. You, you're kind of thinking, you know, you got events like Download, where you had Connect. It, it, you know, it, it, it's just you know what what you want, wanted a modern name. Uh, Transmissions, one of my favourite songs by Joy Division, mm. and, and I just started playing about with things like that, and you come up with Transmit, and you bounce it about a bit, and and it and it sticks, and people mm -hmm. go, yeah, we like it, and. And it looked good without the the the, the vowels, you know. And and again, yeah. you know, partly because, you know, I guess people, you know, fly fly more or, or, or pre pandemic they flew more than they ever had done. So people are familiar with GLA for Glasgow yeah. and IBZ for Ibiza and you know everything in between. Mm -hmm. So again, you know that you know abbreviations and and dropping vowels, it just seemed to be the the thing to do at the time. So, yeah, throwing a little bit of pretension into it. You know? I absolutely love it. I, I've never had a bad time. I've always had a time in my life. It's always given me the fear for about two weeks afterwards <laughs> because you're just on it for three days. But it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, I suppose one of the first questions, and it's a question that's in a lot of people's lips, people are looking 
for 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 joy. They're looking for light. They're looking for excitement. What can you tell us about Transmit Twenty Twenty One? Well, you know, I can tell you, it's, it's it, you know, we're, we're confident it's going to happen. Yes. You know, See, uh, I don't know what to be want to say in case you shouted at me. <laughs> but uh, no, look, you know, we we all need some hope. Um, you know, we all need to have hope, and I think the whilst I wouldn't say I was delighted with the first minister's last announcement, but it was a lot better than the previous yeah. one, and it definitely gave us some hope. You know, um, and you know, hope for the summer. It didn't give us a date, and that's you know that, and we do need that. We need that to plan because you know, first minister said she hopes you know the country be at level zero, you know, in 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 late June. But level zero does still mean social distancing at, at 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 the moment. Obviously, level zero might you know change the criteria, and we and we need social distancing to be removed. But you know, to me, it's you know I think we've got another couple of weeks to to wait for for, for yeah. clarity. Um, and certainly, look, you know, if the if the gig was in if the transmit was in May, you know, we'd be throwing in the towel. But you know, so I think. Um, you know, there's definitely optimism there. I mean, in England, every festival's pretty much sold out because they've been given clarity, they've been given a date and a specific date, which Scottish government will say they think that date's ambitious, you mm-hmm. know, the 21st of June. But, you know, everything that seems to be coming out at number 10 Downing Street is, you know, 21st of June, we'll see the removal of physical distancing mm. you know, and everybody needs to plan on how that's going to happen. The, the What's... The reason why we, you know, you can't just go, well, let, let's do events from the 21st of June onwards is because you can't wait until the review date of the 14th yeah. of June to go ahead with something large scale on the 21st of June. So, you know, we, we, we need, you know, you know, to do that, you need more notifications. So, so that's why get, getting clarity is you know, the, 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 the key thing. And I think it will come because there's a lot more clarity in, in this week's speech and than than has been before mm-hmm. and um and we can see things starting to move in the right direction yeah. you know in terms of what's been said but also we we're not going to be out of set with england we can't be it'd be untenable you know um because you know for, for a start everybody'd be flocking down to england to to go to events yeah, everybody's already buying tickets for for events in england you know that that's in, in scotland people are buying tickets for for events in england because they know that they're going to happen and that's frustrating for all the scottish event organizers um it's frustrating even in the conference market because conferences are confirming for england because they they've got some certainty they don't yeah. have that certainty in scotland but what what the confidence i've got now is you know, okay, well, you know, the first minister said we're, we'll probably only be two weeks behind England, and if England seem very, very certain that they'll be open come, yeah. come, come July, so we we have to have confidence from that. What the actual dates will be, you know, we, we, you know, remains to be be seen. But I think we'll know in the next couple of weeks. We're now at a very crucial tipping point, and I think something that that has to be considered as well is. Yeah, we're all talking about we want to go out and have fun, we want to go out and have a great time, but what we're looking at is, you know, the livelihoods of ordinary people, people that live in your street, people that are in your family, people that you know, you know, there's jobs that seriously are on the line. And, um, you know, because people talk about the industry, but the industry is a very euphemistic term. We're talking about real people, local events and, and things that might never come back. And obviously, we don't want to jump the gun. However, I would say in a nutshell, if everybody's been vaccinated... 
if yeah. cases are coming away down, then there, surely there has to come a point, and I'm open to being corrected if I'm completely wrong, or if I'm getting this wrong, but surely there has to come a point where we go, right, come on lads, it's been a year and a half, and everybody in this island has been vaccinated, yeah. who's eligible. Yeah, you're absolutely right there, absolutely right, because um, I think, and it's, it's funny, I remember Jason Leach is a head clinician. When somebody asked him the direct question of what do the conditions need to be like to open up fully, and he was saying, "Well, I'm a clinician, so you know, I I, I have to answer that in in the safest possible terms. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, until the the virus is eradicated, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, I would say keep everything closed. But that's not practical. I know that. Yeah. But you know, but from a clinical point of view, how do you stop people getting ill? Well, don't let anybody come into contact yeah. with anybody else, and they won't get ill. You know, that's true, but it's not practical, as as he said. So he, you know, he's <clears> always <throat> said it needs to be a political decision, and that political decision, and it's not, it's not political with with a you know, party political, it, it's a decision that needs to be made by politicians, yeah. but it has to be, be be made considering all the harms. And, and um, we're not going to eradicate, you know, uh, coronavirus, you know, f- from from the UK this year or anywhere in the world. That's not going to happen. And, it, you know, it might never happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we haven't eradicated meningitis either, and you can catch meningitis mm-hmm. at, at, at a at the theatre, at the cinema, at a con- you know, at, at yeah. a concert, you know, you, 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 people can't be wrapped up in cotton wool. What you, what the whole point of lockdown and everything else has been to protect the NHS, to protect the vulnerable until the vaccination has been developed. Yeah. And, and the fact that the vaccinations have come really quickly, they're out there. The UK is performing, you know, all, one of the best in the world. Obviously, America is saying they're going to have everybody vaccinated um, and be open by July the fourth. Israel's the, the country that's furthest ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not necessarily the occupied territories, unfortunately, but um, yeah, that's, you know, but, but that's, that's a whole different um, political issue. But you know, in terms of um, you know the the the, the, the information that's that, that's there now is the vaccination does prevent transmission. Yeah. So that's that's been crucial. That's what the politicians been waiting to have confirmation on. So, you know, it's about mitigating risks now, not avoiding risks. You can't avoid all risk, you know, that that's not possible. And and you take a risk crossing the road to go to a concert, you know, you take a risk getting on a bus or a train mm-hmm. or in, in your car. You know, you can't eliminate risk, but you can mitigate against it. And the vaccinations, as you say, is is great news. And, you know, um, and and you know we'll not stop anybody ever catching coronavirus. What will stop? What 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 what's bit been stopped is, you know, the 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 the, the unacceptable level of deaths, yeah. the the burden on the NHS, the number of hospital cases, and what. But you know, and I'd have to em- emphasise this: getting to kind of you know almost zero cases, you know, per hundred thousand. We can't wait for that. We have to be open mm-hmm. sooner. And and the vaccination is is a key thing because people's, you know, people need concerts, you know, and they need social sitting, so, social situations for their mental health and well being. You know, kids need to be at school not just for for education, but it's where they see their friends mm-hmm. and, and everything. You know, that that needs to happen. Families need to meet up. When it's safe to do so, and it will be safe to do so in the summer, so we, you know, we we have to plan for that now, and and we can't start the planning once 
you know, coronavirus has been er eradicated. We have to plan for it now. And if something changes, we have to adapt. And and, we, and you know, I think the population have shown that, you know, when there's a second lockdown, that they by and large ad adhere to it. Yeah. So if something, if a curveball comes in, we we'll, we deal with that at the time, but we need to stop planning now mm -hmm. properly for being open you know it's you know we've got to now manage that risk and not try to avoid it at all costs you know the music's not just good for the soul it's good for your mental health and well-being that's been proven by numerous studies we need to you know uh, have that kind of uh, you know enjoyment well-being back in our lives and also you know you made reference to it not just being about the music industry for events like Transmit, it's a whole of the city that mm. feeds off that. Yeah. Yeah, it's nightclubs, it's bars, it's sandwich shops, it's coffee shops, it's, it's hotels. Security taxi staff drivers. getting a job. Yeah, and... it's all the all the, the staff working, not just at the event, but all the extra staff working in the nightclubs, working yeah. in the hotels. You know, we, we need hotels, you know, back up at, at, at high occupancy. You know, we need people coming into the, the city. And it will be safe to do do it by you know mid to late summer. So let you know, let's get those dates in and and, mm -hmm. and, and start planning for it because you know we we all need it. Let's just say in an ideal world, then when could the people of Scotland be expecting to be descending upon Glasgow Green? Uh, well, I look, you know, I think, is that something I, you have to keep I, under your hat for now? I, I think we're probably two weeks away from saying that, I, you know, um, because. If we were, if if we were, if it's down to UK government, we'd be saying, well, they, they can come from the twenty first of June. You know, yeah. that, that's what we'd be we, we'd be saying. We don't have a date yet for Scotland, and we need that date to, yeah. you know. And I, but I think we'll probably, you know, if you ask me in a couple of weeks, you know, I think I'll be able to say, right, this, yeah, this is a date that that things will be open again from. I yeah. think that will come, and if we're doing a sort of simple equation of cases rapidly decreasing and vaccinations rapidly increasing, then, then we're there. So we're at that crucial tipping point where we can either go one way over the cliff edge or we can sort of draw back and sort of go back inland. So Nicola, I know you're listening. I think you've done a great job. Um, I'm joking, by the way. <laughs> she, 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 she does normally listen, but she's busy now. She's got stuff going on. Um, I feel sorry for, I feel a wee bit sorry for Jason Leach at times because he is answering from a clinician's perspective and saying, as a clinician, I have yeah. to see X, yeah. but at this point I have to see Y. And it's, it's quite easy to sort of manipulate or to take a statement or a soundbite. And it's very easy to... To manipulate that and present it in a certain way, and uh, that's something that perhaps happened with you uh, um, a wee while back. If I can, if I read this out, you, you know what I'm going to say. No, I don't. A wee bit of a backlash for for saying about female musicians on, on oh, festival yeah, lineups. Yeah, yeah, so that's yeah. what I was taking that. Yeah. Now, perhaps that was sort of twisted, or, or not twisted, or manipulated, or presented in a certain way. But he said that in order for women to be playing at Scottish festivals, they'd need to be picking up guitars and playing in bands. I think on the surface. Is that a bad? Is that an outrageous statement? I, I think the I, I think the way I I said it was was a uh, handed right phrase. It was it was cl clumsy at least. It was clumsy. Yeah. The, the point I was making really is there are more males in bands than than, than women in bands, and that and you know and it was something that you know Vic Bain, who I've got a lot of time for and respect for, and the work she's doing is you know is is, is really good. And, you know, she kind of did a study and showed, um, I forget the actual percentage, so that it might be wrong, but it's something like of recording musician, recording musicians that are signed. It's 67% of women, I think. Uh, sorry, 67% of male. Mm. Um, 
So, you know, that that's a you know uh, a long way from 50-50. So, you know, that you know, change has to happen um to get, you know, 50-50 balance. It it's it's too simplistic to say, well, you should just book a lineup that's 50% e- either way, because mm. you know, if you know if you've got um a lot less um women bands to choose from you know for for each slot as opposed you know because obviously you could book a a lineup for something that's all female but you know if you're looking to sell 50,000 tickets mm-hmm. you you've got to have a balance of artists that can do that i can't say to every woman in a band you have to play transmit you know, yeah. I don't. I don't care that you you don't have a re- record out until the following year. I don't care that you're in Spain. You have to play transmit because I have to have gender balance. You know mm-hmm. that, that that's obviously not practical. That I thought. I just thought that was a good opportunity to give to give you a chance to be able to explain what that was because it's it's the social media bubble. It just becomes a cacophonous a cacophonous rabble yeah. and people shouting at each other. When in reality, the 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 meaning of the statement, I believe, I, I really do believe, was. Um, was more complex and and far more reasonable than it was presented to be. So I would yeah, and, and look, there's, there's a lot of um, you know women agents now um, in the industry. Which when I started, there was only you know one, one or two, and and you know most most of them actually contacted me at the time and said, look, you kind of know what you're saying. You made a bit of an arse of <laughs> of yeah. how you said it, but you know um, you know and and you know and again you know you, I, I know. From you know uh, some of the the, the Scottish based um, women artists that we, we we deal with are asked to make comments on it, and they kind of say, "Well, actually, no, we, you know, we've worked work with DF for a while, and, and you know, they they do give opportunities to to, yeah. to, to women artists, you know, but you know, um, yeah, and it, it was it was a difficult difficult thing because it, the way it's presented was as though I you know I'd said something rather than people saying, "Oh, you you probably could have." phrase what you're trying to say a bit better you know if somebody reports that somebody said something everybody jumps on yeah exactly you you said that rather than looking at the 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 detail of it it's framed in a certain way and i'd imagine then that people would just pick up from those quotes and write a story as opposed to getting in touch with you and going here mate do you want to clarify that before we kind of write about it i suppose that that's the world we live in and the social media bubble doesn't help but yeah no i i I think it's um yeah, I think it was unfair, um, and I, I, I think any reasonable person listening would take that into consideration. And it's not just as simple as fifty-fifty. That it's a that are as you've explained, that's a complex yeah. thing to, to work around. As you say, you can't say no. You're not taking a holiday. Yeah. You're going to be in Glasgow Green on that day. Yeah. People, but, but as as a as an aspiration, I think fifty-fifty gender balance is is a good aspiration to 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 have, mm. and uh, and certainly that's that's what we would love to achieve. So you know, it's you know it. it you know, it's 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 not easy, and we're not going to get to it this year or or next year. But to, yeah. to have it as a long term goal, and and you know, when I'm talking about gender balance, I'm talking about you know at, at each level because it's it's easier to have half of the lineup, um, you know, to have fifty fifty across the whole lineup. That's a lot easier to achieve than to have, you know. Fifty percent of the headliners and fifty percent of the penultimate headliners, mm. you know, as 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 gender balance. That's where the, the the challenge is. It's not having, and and I guess that's where, where it came across. I was saying you can't have fifty percent of the lineup being uh, women artists. You know, when when I talk 
talk about because I, I see it as you know headliners and that, that that's what people are looking at and i think most people are when they they look at it look at the main stage headliners mm-hmm. and go well that, that that's that's a balance and whether it's gender or, or genre because you know people go you know you, you you rock or you dance or you pop or, or or it's a mixture you know so you know um but that that's the most visible thing that's what's selling the tickets but certainly as as you move you know across the bill then it's then it, it it's it's easier to get that that balance because you can you know um proactively support women artists you know um you know, on on the on, on the smaller stages, and, and help develop acts. You know, for the for the future. And um, you know, Tamzine being a good example, who's on the Queen Touch stage. Mm-hmm. The last time we had we, we had the festival, uh, is now on. The, uh, so it was on the yeah Queen Touch stage. Is now on the King Touch stage. You know, and and hopefully, and you know, will be a main stage artist at some point in the future. So you know, again, it, it's kind of trying to you know change the the, the shape of future festival lineups by by you know putting more effort in um you know you know book, booking the the lineups mm-hmm. you know as 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 you know we used to we're finding you know new bands like we talked about oasis and you know blur and manix in in, in the early days of seeing the park you're trying to find your future headliners mm-hmm. and and now it's a case of you know and i think every festival's do doing this is trying to book as many fledgling women artists as it can to help change you know to, to help move that dial yeah you know um so it becomes easier to book or, or easier to, to have more female headliners in the future because if more female artists have, have moved um through the bill or, or not the bill of one specific event but across you know generally across festival bills then that will become easier and, and that's something you know again you know vic's you know, uh, Vic, Vic Bain's studies seem to be, you know, suggesting mm-hmm. as well. So. No, I think it's fair, fairly explained, and I think any reasonable person listening will understand, you know, where you're coming from. Um, and, you know, it's not like journalists to, to twist things or to misrepresent things. And it's happened once, it's happened before, and I'm sure it will happen again, but you, you, you kind of deal with it. Just as we kind of round up, is there anything else that you kind of want to push towards? Oh, there is something, sorry, I'm forgetting um, something that's really worth just finishing off on. You are an executive committee member uh, or a member of the fundraising committee for the Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy in Scotland. So just a wee quick explanation for anybody that's wondering. Nordoff Robbins Therapy is first developed by Dr. Paul Nordoff and Dr. Clive Robbins and it's practised by hundreds of therapists internationally. Um, am I right in saying it helps young children and, and adults as well who are non-communicative um, able to yeah. sort of therapy through music yeah it, it, uh, you know the work that the clinicians do is is, is phenomenal and um <clears throat> excuse me and you know uh you know to see music therapy in, in action and the difference it makes to people's lives because it can be somebody recovering from a you know a head injury or brain injury and rehabilitation or it can be somebody who you know is not responsive to many other senses or, or you know i mean I've, I've seen you know some children who are hardly responsive to anything at all mm. um you know sight sound with music it's something that 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 um they can recognize and make a connection with yeah. and to see them either you know smiling laughing or you know and it might be you know helping to 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 perform as well you know playing an instrument themselves that expression, you know, and and the, the 
the lift it gives to the parents of, and families of, of those children, you know, is, is, is immense as well because, you know, if, you know they've they've got a, you know, a difficult situation where you know they're, they're finding it hard to communicate with a child, mm-hmm. or, and and through music and the power of music that they're seeing that and they're seeing the, the happiness of the child through you know through their engagement with music, be it listening or active performing and you know something as simple as you know you know just hitting um you know a xylophone or mm-hmm. something yeah and that that's great you know and and but you know, on the re- rehabilitation side as well it's it, it's important and you know Ed, edwin collins you know um you know was a beneficiary of of music therapy and you know and it helped him he got back to performing yeah, didn't exactly he? so yeah. you know and and obviously that's you know a f- you know full circle if you if you like there's somebody who's you know who's obviously you know been involved in music from you know, a, a, you know as a as a professional yeah. and then you know the the mu- music therapy helping helping him so it's it's a very it, you know it's it, it's what one of the music industry charities you know along with yeah. teenage cancer trust as well because it, 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 you know musicians find it easy to to support it because of the the, the relevance and mm-hmm. the fact that they can contribute to it and you know musicians can go out and and work with therapists as well you know, and uh, you know they can see the the the, the benefits. So you know, it's 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 been supported by the music industry for many years. As you know, that we we have the Scottish Music Awards. I've got a funny story about that, by the way. The uh, Scottish Music Awards, but you can go uh, on and tell. Uh, uh, well, you know, we we we've you know, and the Scottish Music, you know, the Tartan Clefts started off as being a dinner really at the at the Hilton, and it's now progressed to being the Scottish Music Awards yeah. with live performances, and it's a, a, you know the highlight of the. Of uh, or you know a highlight of the Scottish music calendar, and then there's the Silver Clefts in London, which is is a great lunchtime event. Doesn't have the live doesn't music. Doesn't have live, live music, but has all all the the major you know, music stars coming in because yeah. again they all want to support the charity, and the auction is, is you know is fantastic. You've got loads of artists you know from the Stones to U two donating things. You, you'll have you know record company execs you know. Outbidding each other to get, and um, there's a famous mm. story that um, you know, modest management tell. You know, um, you, you know when they were both heads of different labels. You know, um, and uh, they, they were both leaving their, their labels, so they both had their expense accounts and <laughs> and were, were there. You know, supporting Olaf Robbins by, <laughs> by you know bidding as much money as they could to, to raise money for the charity. You know, and. I'm sure you know, the record companies, you know, whilst they were like, oh, God, there, there's our outgoing execs spending <laughs> big, big money, they all support the, the, the charity anyway, so they probably saw it as money, money well spent. So, yeah, it's, 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 it, it's right at the heart of the, of the music industry as mm-hmm. a charity, really. The, uh, if anybody wants to, to find out how you can help or to find out more, then I would just suggest Google Nordoff Robbins. It isn't that hard. Um, but the Scottish Music Awards. So I found out, I was on a night out and I found out that Simple Minds were going to be appearing to play. They did three songs. So first of all, if you find this funny, then it was me. If you don't find this funny, it was somebody else, right? Um, so I basically came down with three of my pals and we blagged our way in because uh, we heard Simple Minds. I was like, I'm getting in, I need to see Simple Minds. But we didn't know where to go. And because it was in the, uh, oh, it was the old fruit market, market yeah, yeah. And it was just like, like corridors. So I was like, we need to walk with purpose before we get seen. And uh, we're kind of going up a corridor and I was like, let's just go in this door. So as I've pulled open the door, I've realised that it was the side of the stage door. 
And I was basically like nose to nose with Edith Bowman because she was getting ready just to kind of walk on stage and she kind of got a bit of fright. I get a bigger fright and slammed the door back and was like, no, no, we've come the wrong way. <laughs> but we managed to get in and uh, we saw Simple Minds. And uh, so I, it, it was definitely, definitely yeah. worth it. And obviously you made a healthy donation on the on the way out. In, oh, aye, of course, so, of yeah. course. <laughs> and uh, big barbell and all that, and that was great. Um, aye, so is there anything else that you kind of want to just... Mention. Oh, oh, I think you know. It's just we can't wait to get back to to get back to live music again and get back to doing gigs. You know, and that's you know, um, you know, it's nice to actually get out of the house and be, I know, be, be I in know. the studio and, and 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 talking to somebody. So that, that that's that <laughs> that feels like a big. Uh, <laughs> I know it's like Christmas. But, uh, yeah, but um, yeah, so it's as close as I've been to a gig for for a while. But um, yeah. but no, we, you know, we all want to get back. You know, the, the artists want to get back on stage. Yeah, you know, the, the stewards want to be doubling up on uh, on on the the side doors and making sure they're doing the job properly. <laughs> oh yeah, I, oh by the way, I won't tell you about the other places I flagged in, and I don't want to get him into trouble. But, uh, it's all about just acting uh, as if you're meant to be uh, there, and nobody'll uh, question you. Uh, but um, yeah, look, you know, we we, we all want to get back and um, and audiences as much as anything because we, yeah. we all miss it. And um, you know, I think you know there'll be no you know, people kind of. You know, in the past, have maybe moaned about a gig not being great. I don't think there's going to be any bad gigs for the next few years. No, you know, everybody's going to really appreciate every gig. Nobody's going to go, oh, they didn't play that song. Or, oh, didn't like that B-side they did. It's, yeah. uh, people realise, actually. We will appreciate yeah. I'll be, Do you know what? See, next time I get hit with a pint, I'm going to go over and be like, mate, thank you for soaking me with that pint. <laughs> it might have been pissed. I don't know. It was suspiciously warm. I don't mind. I'm just glad to be back. Thanks very much. No, Jeff, I am uh, very grateful for you coming in giving your time this has been great fun uh, I'm sure people have enjoyed it um, and I suppose the only thing to say to you listening is the curtain comes down on another episode of Blethered Fingers Crossed the curtain's also coming down in the worst of this Covid period and hopefully the stage lights are going up and the good times again starting fingers crossed we have a transmit announcement soon watch this space thanks for listening see you soon Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug, and old school, all on the big light, Scotland's podcast network. From the big light studio. I'm from Australia, the land down under. I am from Brazil. Hi, guys. I'm from South Africa. Tell me something. What would you say if you knew the world was listening? My boss and his wife are terrible people. I mean, I love my man and all, don't get me wrong, but dude is worthless. <laughs> get back in the loop on What's the Word, the international show of word of mouth. You can find us by keying in What's the Word at Acorn Studio. 